Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. David Ney is with us today. He is professor of church history at Trinity School of Ministry in Pennsylvania. He is co-editor of All Thy Lights Combine, Figural Reading in the Anglican Tradition, and his new book is The Quest to Save the Old Testament, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Ney. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, you know, you begin, we, we jump right into the book uh, in, in the podcast, you begin with a contemporary problem, quote, a church which has functionally embraced a New Testament Christianity. Can you clarify that for us? Well, all of us think that we believe that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. Uh, so I'm not trying to draw attention to, um, to a problem um, which is just a, an explicit rejection of it. Um, but I think a lot of us just have the feeling that the Old Testament functions as um, something less than the New Testament. And we can, we can look at just the sermons that we get on a Sunday morning, how many of them are actually um, on Old Testament texts. Um, and I think that there's a lot of scholars that have drawn attention uh, to this problem, so I'm certainly not the first. And do you think that this is, this sort of again not not you're saying not an explicit rejection? I mean, maybe in some cases, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll get into that a little bit going back to the Enlightenment, uh, which which you do, but uh, not so much active rejection, but just kind of okay. Well, that's just a pretext. Uh, that that's sort of a, a little introduction. Now we get to the Gospels, and, and here we are with, with the real Christianity. Is that an attitude uh, of the leadership uh, often or uh, in the Christian churches that filters down among, among the laity? So, I mean, the problem is, is widespread, and it has to do with laity and, and uh, Christian leaders both. And there are so many different aspects of it. I don't mean to be the person who tells everything about this story, but I think that I have a story to tell, which is quite specific and which um, helps illuminate this problem for us. And I think you can go back to the early church and just see how the Old Testament functioned for them. And that is really, I think, what brings this problem into relief. So if we take something like the Council of Nicaea, um, it's clear that the Old Testament there is functioning as Christian scripture because the most contentious text in that debate was from the book of Proverbs. And so um, the people involved are 
interest in the Old Testament, not as a subtext, like you said, or as a historical backdrop to the real event, but they're actually building their Christological doctrine based upon it. Hmm. The, the attitude then, uh, the downgrading of the Old Testament, it doesn't happen in the medieval period. It doesn't happen in the Renaissance. It, I mean, it doesn't happen in the, during the Reformation. It's really the Enlightenment that we begin to trace this consignment of the Old Testament to sort of, again, the, 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 the precursor, maybe the mistaken precursor of, of Christianity. So when I traced um, this testimony back in time, um, I didn't trace it all the way back, um, but I did find a really interesting moment where it comes into the conversation. And you're absolutely right. That's at the dawn of modernity. And the, one of the first people who seemed to raise the alarm bell about this is uh, a man by the name of John Hutchinson, and he features prominently in my book. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to him you, because you do open. Uh, with him. But then you, 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 you turn quickly, to, sort of quickly, to Isaac Newton. And many people might be surprised at how devout Newton was. How did Newton regard the Old Testament? So let me just say one thing briefly about Newton before we get into this. And that is, uh, for mo most of modernity, Newton was the poster boy of the Enlightenment, the poster boy of uh, scientific progress. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that people have started to sniff through his manuscripts that they've realized that this man is not who they thought he was. They, like you said, he was a devout um, Christian of sorts, <laughs> though he was uh, certainly a, a heretical one. And he wrote more about the Old Testament than he did about scientific matters. Um, and what is so fascinating about this, I think, is that it just shows us how far we have come intellectually and how different our context is in modernity uh, than the context that Newton was involved, which is a very similar context to someone like, say, Hildegard von Bingen, who was a doctor and an alchemist and a composer and a philosopher and a theologian all in one. So Newton is all of these things. And so his view of the Old Testament is tied to his views about all sorts of other things as well. You know, I remember being in a class as an undergraduate back at UCLA. I, it, was, it was a history of science class, I think. And I remember just a little side remark that the teacher once made when he was looking at Kepler. And he, he just said, you know, Kepler wrote a lot more about religion than he wrote about the planets. He spent much more time on, on God and, and the Bible and what then. And I don't know how accurate that was, but it really stuck with me. And so when I read, it, it, I remember that as well, when I read about Newton and that there's, is there... In Newton's mind, would there have been a stark division between his religious studies and his scientific studies, or would he have regarded those as perfectly complementary? So the division between science and, uh, or sci the sciences and the humanities is something that's just happening at this time. And so that's why uh, Newton is so intriguing, because he's 
he's part of a context in which these things are all melded together, and yet his own work is starting to push them apart. So he finds in the hard sciences um, a certainty which he hopes to impose upon uh, humane learning, upon historical learning, and upon the Old Testament. And he's trying to hold these two things together. Um, but most of the people who read his work on the Old Testament believe that he failed to do that. And even uh, in his time, even, even, even in, in his, his time, time, yeah, even in his time. And so he actually is is someone who generates the division between the sciences and humanities, even though he's trying to hold those things together. Yeah. You have a term in, in that discussion, devolutionary history. What is devolutionary history? So a lot of uh, scholars have tended to embrace what we might call a history of decline. So the scholars of the Renaissance did that. Um, they propagated the idea that the medieval era was full of darkness and that they were the harbingers of light. Uh, some of the Reformation scholars did the same thing. Uh, and so it's not altogether surprising that when a new movement gets on uh, the stage, that people are complaining about history as well. And they're saying, we are the ones who are going to return us uh, to these pristine beginnings. So that's not new here with Newton. But what is so surprising with Newton and with his colleagues is a complete devaluation of history itself. And that's what I'm calling devolutionary history. So as they look at the hard sciences and the certain results they can give us, and as they look at mathematical certainty, and then they look at the kind of knowledge that history gives us, they find that it's completely inadequate and that it doesn't measure up. And this leads to a view uh, that history itself is kind of corrosive of knowledge. And that then means that historical testimony can't be trusted. And it means also that even words can't be trusted. Hmm. And that's why Newton looks to numbers. Numbers are for him the things that stand above history, above uh, the devolutionary um, and corrosive effects of history. And I think that view is still with us. It's with us uh, through positivistic philosophies, um, which I think he helped to generate. The, uh, you, you spent a lot of time discussing Newton, but then turned to some of the lesser known figures. Who was Samuel Clark? And what was his Old Testament? How does he figure into your, your book? So Samuel Clark is one of only uh, a number of the characters that I uh, encounter in 18th century England. And it was an absolute joy to get to research him because he was big news. And he's one of these people that has been forgotten. He probably more than anyone else um, helped to promote this kind of New Testament Christianity uh, that I talk about. And he did it from the pulpit of probably the most important parish uh, in the city of London. He did it through his scientific writings. And he was Newton's protege. And so he helps to bring Newton's thought uh, to a wider audience. Did he understand Newton's scientific studies of nature? As you, you know, I, I, I always recall the Alexander Pope 
little lines on, on Newton's death. He says, nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and then there was light. And is there an idea here that Newton's studies rendered uh, revelation, revealed religion superfluous? We don't need that anymore. So because there is so much emphasis on uh, nature and natural laws, and because people are looking to nature to give them the certainty that they feel that historic texts can't give them, uh, there is a, um, an elevation of Newton. And some would say an elevation of Newton above uh, even the divine authors um, of, of the Bible, uh, people such as Moses. And so this is actually how John Hutchinson uh, makes his claim to fame. He picks up on, I think, things like what Pope said, and he just feels that the star profile that has been given to Newton is a profile which means that people are looking to the new science instead of to the scriptures as their ultimate authority. Did, they, did, did a lot of them just say end up consigning the Old Testament to the world of superstition? So I know that's blunt, but but I, I think again it has to do with with historic knowledge and with history itself, and they feel like they have climbed out of the morass of of the confusing testimony of the past, and that they don't need it anymore. That with the new sciences, they have everything they need. Um, certainly, uh, not just to give them facts, but to give them facts about God's good earth. Um, and they actually start building theologies off of the natural sciences. Uh, so you have another one of Newton's uh, protégés by the name of William Whiston, who writes a whole book called The Astronomical Principles of Religion. And he tries to show how, based on Newtonian science, you can pretty much figure out everything you need to know about God. And if you can figure out everything you need to know about God, um, based on Newton's science, then obviously you don't need the Bible. Um, and he was, he was kind of more blunt in his, in his uh, announcement of this, this fact than someone like Clark, but it's, it's there in the culture, and it's a culture which uh, leads us to the place where um, particularly the Old Testament is regarded as problematic. So I think the, the question then becomes, well, what about the New Testament? Isn't the New Testament historic knowledge too? Isn't it a document written uh, in the past by human authors? And the answer is, well, of course it is. Um, but there's kind of a, there's kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Just a, Hesitation? a little bit of a uh, move, I guess you could say, where, where the, the New Testament is presented as this kind of um, ahistoric revelation which is given to them by Jesus. And so somehow it's protected from history in the way that the Old Testament isn't. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Hmm. You, you say that Clark ends up regarding Judaism as something of the, quote, antithesis of Christianity. Does that carry over to Old Testament then becoming versus the New Testament for him? Well, it's interesting that you should mention that because in his own day, Clark was regarded as kind of a very liberal, progressive uh, thinker. But if you look through it, the anti-Semitism is, is throughout. And um, the degradation of the Old Testament at this time that people like him are promoting certainly does have a corrosive effect on the opinion that Christians have of Jews around them. Uh, but again, it has to do with science presenting us with this certain knowledge which is stable and which is protected from, uh, from the confusion of human testimony. And I think this is, this is partly why the Old Testament continues to be wrestled with today, right? People today wrestle earnestly with what they find in the Old Testament. They wrestle with the accounts of God's judgment. They wrestle with the accounts of genocide. Uh, they wrestle with the, the conflicting testimonies which seem to exist there. And Clark, as a brilliant scholar, was aware of all of these things, and he was embarrassed by them as well. Um, but he thought that the best thing to do was to simply not draw attention to these things and to kind of stuff them in a closet and to try and elevate the New Testament as that which corresponds um, to all to to the latest research and sciences. Yeah. Uh, what was Clark wasn't a member of the clergy, correct? No, he was he was an ordained uh, minister in the Church of England. He was okay. Okay. Uh, now to Hutchinson, who exactly was Hutchinson? Uh, where was, was he? Was he in the? Was he in the church? So all the people we're dealing with here are um, are baptized Anglicans. A lot of them are clergy. So they're part of the establishment uh, in England at that time. And uh, Hutchinson was someone who didn't have the education of someone like Newton or Clark. Uh, and he, he came to London trying to make a name for himself as a, as a thinker. In his own day, he would have been uh, referred to as a natural philosopher. Uh, but after many abortive attempts to be recognized by Newton, by the by the Clockmakers Guild, by uh, the Royal Society, uh, he just um, writes a few books on his own, which probably would have disappeared into obscurity had he not managed to draw to himself a couple of zealous young disciples who end up publicizing his collected works after he dies. And it's through that work that his work uh, gets into the hands of a lot of the most important thinkers in England. Uh, one thing you wrote, one thing you note is just how, how much a lot of these, what to us would seem very abstruse and, and academic uh, debates, high theological debates, 
were very much in the air broadly in, uh, in, in England and Europe around this time. This was, this was one of the most important debates for, for the culture at large, correct? So when it comes to what people call the rise of science, um, it's obviously a more complicated story um, than our, our, you know, our, our high school textbooks give us. Uh, the, the rise of a modern empiricism goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. But what we have at this moment in history is a dissemination of uh, the empirical method that was unprecedented. And so there are people in coffee houses and on street corners uh, doing scientific demonstrations and trying to prove Newton's theorems uh, for, for a popular audience and, and other important thinkers as well. And there's just a buzz and an excitement uh, in the air that they've moved into this new era, uh, which has unlocked the truths of nature. And like I keep saying, has given them a level of certainty, which all of the learning uh, up until that time had failed to give them. So there's a lot of energy and it's an energy which is specifically scientific, like I'm saying, but it's also an energy which draws in other branches of human learning because we're still at a time where all of these things are connected. And uh, to talk about one um, element of human learning is to uh, engage in implications in another era. And so when it comes to Newton's own work, um, his Principia Mathematica, you have people in all sorts of other disciplines trying to duplicate that. Um, you have people, you have someone who writes uh, a book called uh, Principia Theologiae, right? He's trying to do the same things in theology. They're trying to do the same thing with a theory of um, the humors in the body or even menstruation. And mm -hmm. Hutchinson is trying to do the same thing as he writes about the books of Moses. Uh, and so he calls his book, uh, Moses's Principia. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you say that Hutchinson really believes that the Old Testament demonstrates the neat accordance of revealed religion with natural religion. It, it, if, if Newton gives us the nature as revealed, uh, uh, nature's God's creation as revealed through Newtonian laws and numbers, uh, that the Old Testament gives us the revealed religion, and that they go they go together quite well, correct? <laughs> it's it's kind of hard for us to to imagine someone uh, who who thinks the way Hutchinson does, and I guess the closest analog we have today um, is something like creation science, right? Which which says that you can look at the words of the Old Testament, and they will give you a true account of the natural world. Um, I think that when it comes to something like creation science, it's actually Newton that's the forebearer of that. Um, but Hutchinson certainly is in a world in which all of these uh, all of these branches of learning are interconnected, and so you're reading divine scripture as something which teaches you not only about the God of the heavens, uh, but the earth you live in. And if it's something that teaches you about the earth you live in and the world uh, you engage then that means it's going to tell you true things about the natural world too. So he just takes that for granted. Um, I think partly the, the way it feels so 
contrived to us with him is a product of this particular moment in history. And it's a moment, like I said, in which the sciences and the humanities are pulling apart. They're separating from one another. And so it's as if he's reaching across this divide, trying to pull the sciences back into uh, the scriptures. Um, and it's, it's not as compelling as um, the way this kind of exercise would have been done, I think, in, in previous generations. Um, so I, I, I fully acknowledge that, that he's, 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 he's an obtuse thinker and one that we are probably critical of, um, for good reason. But what's so fascinating, uh, for me about him is just how so many people took him seriously and how there was actually some very, um, some very rich thought, which comes out of his work. And a movement known as Hutchinsonianism, which lasts well into the 19th century. Yeah. Well, one of the places your, your discussion goes deeply into the text and, and the methods of Hutchinson. And I want you to explain, if you would, uh, the importance of emblems and hieroglyphs in his thought, uh, what, what is the emblematic uh, angle? How does that work? So when we talk about knowledge of the natural world, we obviously need to talk about method and, and how do we come to know about the world we live in? And what is so new in the so-called scientific revol revolution, like I said, is just this idea that it's the language of numbers which can give us this certain knowledge. And so you have thinkers who are moving away from the way the pursuit of uh, knowledge of the natural world has been pursued up until that time in the West. And the way that they had pursued um, knowledge of the natural world was through the texts of the past. And so if you wanted to know about a pelican, you would look up Isidore and what he said about the pelicans, and you would learn uh, some curious things, <laughs> which uh, we know, according to modern science, aren't credible. Um, but that's, that's still how you would pursue it. And so there's a rejection of text-based learning um, at this time. And with that is a rejection of one of the key elements of this tradition, which is uh, what I refer to as emblematicism. And emblematicism was one of the most popular elements of the book culture of the Renaissance. And emblematicists um, produced devotional books, um, but they were also regarded seriously by scholars. And the simplest way to describe an emblem is to just say that it has, it tends to have three parts. It has a picture, it has a motto or a phrase, and then it has an explanatory text. And so what you would do if you were an emblematicist is you would either get a famous artist to draw you a picture, or you would steal a picture from someone else. Maybe it was a, uh, an engraving or something like that as well. Sometimes these were done in wood. And then you would find a text from maybe an old, uh, classical discussion or from the Bibles, and you would put that uh, phrase next to it. 
And that doesn't seem remarkable to us, but this was a creative pursuit because you could put surprising text next to an image to generate an interesting reading of that image. And so emblematicists would exchange texts and they would exchange mottos and switch them around. And people would delight in seeing what kinds of meaning could be generated um, by the different accordances uh, that were produced uh, through this exercise. Um, but the point here is just that this shows for us writ large the importance of words in the interpretation of nature. Because the whole point here is that you don't know what the picture means unless you have the words that follow them. And the words that follow them will tell you what this means for you um, today. And often the meaning that was generated through these texts was a moral reading. It was a reading which told you how to live your life today. Um, maybe it warned you about the vices of of deadly sins. Uh, maybe it urged you to think about life and death in a new way. Uh, but it was always the words attached to the images which gave you the meaning. Um, and so with the decline of emblematicism um, is a decline of the confidence we have in words to give us the meaning we need when it comes to engaging the natural world. So when Hutchinson does his interpretation of the books of Moses, he actually uses the emblematic structure. Uh, so he, he has a commentary that goes through the first, um, the first chapter of Genesis. And he, he, uses, um, he uses this emblematic method to show how the text uh, reveals what the natural world really is teaching us. There, there's much more in the book. It is a deep and rich scholarly study. Uh, other figures uh, come up uh, following uh, Hutchinson. But for now, the book is The Quest to Save the Old Testament. Professor Ney, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.